Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow Day Beautiful on all social media at Day Beautiful. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Today's guest grew up in West Virginia and currently lives in Boston, where she has been a middle school civics teacher for the past 16 years. Her debut essay collection, Another Appalachia, is out now. I'm of course talking about Nima Avashia. Hey Nima, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a very snowy, ugly day outside in Boston, so I'm glad to be inside with you. Definitely, yeah. And the same here in Denver. Um, it snowed for three straight days, but it was like a fake snow, like three inches total. But it was like constantly like snow somehow. I don't know how that's even huh. possible. I wish it was three inches here. <laughs> it looks like it's going to be about a foot. Oh, so. man. Yeah. Um, well, well, we are we're here to talk not about weather, even though I always bring up weather. Uh, we're talking about your book, your Another Appalachia, um, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Congratulations on writing it, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. That feels like the biggest deal. Yes, yes. And and tell readers a little bit about it because um, I, I'm fascinated. I, it, was, it was beautiful. I loved it. And I think a lot of people are going to be really intrigued by, by it. So tell readers what it's all about. Sure. Um, so I grew up in southern West Virginia in a really small town called Cross Lanes. Um, and in one way, I was an extreme minority. I was often the only student of color in my classes. Um, there were very, very few people of color in, in the community where I grew up. But at the same time, there was a really small and robust Indian community in the area. And so even though I wasn't in school with people who look like me all the time, there was this, this sort of home that I could go back to on weekends um, within that Indian community. And so the book is... Be- kind of a description uh, in a lot of ways or an exploration of what it was like to grow up both isolated and also deeply held in community um, and how that shaped my racial identity. But at the same time, how, as I sort of started to understand more and more of my identity when it came to gender and sexuality, I couldn't find mirrors anywhere. Um, Being queer and out in West Virginia in the 80s was not common. Um, And so there are moments in which I see myself reflected and moments in which I'm looking for reflections and can't find them. And so the essays in the book sort of explore those childhood experiences and then also how they've shaped how I move through the world as an adult. And yeah, I guess we'll we'll just go from there. So you are it's a book of essays you and you're an academic you teach middle school correct yeah I've never heard anybody describe me as an academic before no, I appreciate I, that I'm, <laughs> yes I'm tired of people just saying academics are college professors no you do what you do is way harder than teaching a 20 year old creative writing let's be real like you're dealing with hormones I will, I will take it <laughs> I will take the description if you want to give it to me yes of course um and so you um did you approach this? I, I know like now, now, like I feel like self-conscious that the saying, did you approach it as an academic, like writing essays, like, or how did this all come, come up, come together as like a collection of essays slash memoir? I definitely didn't approach it okay. from an academic perspective. I approached it for, for fully from a personal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and really a lot of it came together in the context of the 2016 election. Um, prior to that point, I think, 
when people would ask me, you know, oh, where are you from? And I'd say, oh, I'm from West Virginia. Like there was always this like disbelief, right? Mm. And that was annoying. On some level, it was annoying because it was like, yes, there are Indian people in West Virginia. There are black people in West Virginia. There are immigrants in West Virginia. Like I know those things. Why don't you know them? But what I saw happen after, kind of after and around the 2016 election was how the stereotypes about Appalachia were then deployed as a weapon against it. Mm. Right. And so there became this narrative where um, the results of the 2016 election were the responsibility of Appalachia, even though if you added up the electoral votes that Appalachia holds, they were nowhere near enough to, to sway the election results in that way. And this really intense and pervasive stereotype of Appalachia as white and conservative and Christian um, just kept getting kind of deployed again and again. And I was like, but I'm from there. And mm -hmm. I know so many people from there, both people who look like me and come from my culture, but also that even the white Appalachians who I know don't fit with that stereotype. Yeah. And so, and then this book gets published, Hillbilly Elegy, mm -hmm. which sort of like further, further um, establishes or perpetuates that stereotype. Right. Yeah. And so I think I started to feel like, you know what, like if, if, if I don't tell the story of what it was like to grow up in this place, then people don't know that people like me grow up in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I felt like it was important to tell that story both for my like childhood self, but also because there continue to be in Appalachia right now in this moment, yeah brown people and queer people and radical people whose identities are erased when we just have this one narrative about what Appalachia is and who lives mm. there. And so I do think a lot of it was, was in that context of feeling like there was only one story that was really being driven home again and again. Yeah. And, and that like there need, there needed to be opportunities to explore multiple stories. And so many other Appalachian writers are also telling those stories so there are amazing yeah. Black Appalachian writers. There are amazing queer Appalachian writers. It's not like those writers aren't there, but I felt like this story of being Indian and queer in West Virginia wasn't one that people had seen or heard yet. Yeah. And so you start writing because of what you saw and, and everything you just explained for yourself then. Was there any idea that this would, the first piece of writing would turn into a second, into a third, into a fourth, or kind of what was your mindset while actually writing them? I... I never, I definitely didn't start thinking I was writing a book. I started thinking about what would it look like to elicit sort of memories of this place where I grew up and how they shaped me. Um, and I sort of started to write different essays that touched on different pieces of that. And then really where I started to be able to put it together as a collection was in the context of workshops. So um, in Boston, there's an amazing writing nonprofit called Grub Street that offers writing classes. Um, I've taken a bunch. I wouldn't have written this book uh, if I hadn't taken those classes because as a middle school teacher, finding time to write is really challenging. So, you know, I'd be in these classes and my, my classmates would be like, I think there's more here. I think there's a book here. I think I'm starting to see these themes show up again and again in your writing. And then I also went to the Kenyan Writers Workshop in the summer a couple of times. And similarly, there was lucky to have classmates and mentors who were almost able to articulate the relationship between pieces that like I didn't feel like I was totally seeing yet. Um, and so I really feel like there is a way in which community really supported the idea of this is this is a collection like that people would want to read. Because I think even that idea for me is kind of surprising. Like 
do people want to read a story about a, a queer Appalachian kid? Like, is that a story anyone cares about except for me and my friends who I grew up with? Like, I'm not sure. Uh, but but there was a lot of validation that I found in those workshop spaces that helped me to see that there could be a book here. Now I want to jump back in time and kind of just like, I know a lot of this is covered in your book. A lot of your life is covered in obviously in the book. It's out there on the internet, but grew up in Appalachia. We'll skip past that. That's a lot of what the book's about. You leave, obviously you're in Boston now or outside of Boston. Um, you're a, a middle school teacher. I guess why leave? Why? I, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a really good question. And what I would tell you is that in the, in the late nineties, when I was a teenager, um, staying wasn't really presented as an option. Um, not by my parents, not by people in my community, not by my teachers. Like the message I got from pretty much everywhere is that jobs are leaving this place. So you need to leave it too. Um, and plenty of people have stayed and made their lives and are doing incredible work in that space. And I'm so grateful for that. But I think it is really intense to think about the fact that so many people around me were just saying, this isn't a place where you can stay. Um, and when you're 18 and people are telling you that, like, I, I don't, I didn't know that there was an alternative to that. Um, and I also think that on some level, the racial isolation that I experienced did make me really curious about what it would look like to live in a place where I wasn't the only one, where I could be in rooms and look around and I would see multiple people who reflected back to me, my hair, my hair color, my eye color, my skin color, right? Like there was part of me that was kind of hungry for like, what would that look like or feel like? Uh, and so those two sort of pushes, the internal push of myself being curious about that. And then the external push of adults in my life, just saying, you need to go, you got to go. Um, really, really made it seem like staying wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. And when did writing kind of become a part of who you are? Was it when you were in Appalachia? Was it after you left? When did kind of it become ingrained with you, who you are? Yeah. Always. I yeah. think, um, you know, it's a funny thing. I have an older sister who's seven years older than me. And I feel like when you have that gap, you just spend your whole life trying to catch up. <laughs> and so, you know, I started writing in the carpet in our house when I was three, like trying to do what she was doing, but like I wasn't doing with pencil and paper. I would use my finger and write on the carpet. Um, and we had this amazing tiny library in the town where I grew up. It's no bigger than the room that I'm in right now. Um, but I read every book on the shelves and my mom would take me every week and I'd get 20 books out and I'd read them all and I'd go back the next week and switch them out. Um, and so like words as a way into the world is just sort of, I think in my conscious identity has always been there. Uh, and very early I started to write two stories, creative stuff. Um, we had like a teen newspaper in the town where I grew up. I wrote for it. Um, I didn't know what kind of writing I wanted to do. Like, I think for a while I thought I wanted to be a journalist because mm -hmm. that was the main kind of writing I was seeing. Um, but, but there's never a moment where I think I wasn't really intrigued by words and what they have the ability to do for us. When did you kind of realize what type of writing you wanted to do? Was it in 2016 or prior to that? No, it was way before that. It yeah. was actually when I was in college, it was in college. So when I went to college at Carnegie Mellon, um, 
I wanted to study writing and my parents were like, you need a practical major. So I was like, okay, I'll be a professional writing major. That sounds very practical. And then I was the professional writing major who only took like the two required professional writing classes and took everything else in creative writing, right? Like every creative writing class I could take, I was taking. Um, And I loved it, right? I took a literary journalism class my freshman year and I was like, this is, this is it. Like creative nonfiction is this thing I feel really excited about and I feel a lot of energy around it. Um, and I started doing that in college and, um, and I found it to be just a space where like, I could ask really hard questions about myself and my life and try to answer them. And I think that's the thing that I feel like I continue to do in my writing is like, I don't feel like I always have answers to questions. I think often I don't, but I think that writing is a way to explore the questions and kind of pick up the question and turn it around and look at all sides of it and see, all right, if I consider this question from lots of different angles, like what can I reveal about the question and about myself by doing that? Mm-hmm. And then, but from college till now, um, how do I say this? Not a long time, but I don't mean to say it like that, but like you, you say you're a proud middle school teacher since 2003 on your Twitter bio. You've been teaching since yep. 2003. It's 2022. It's a while. Yep. Did you ever give up on writing? Like, cause I feel like I, I used to teach high school briefly for two years. Very bad at it. I admit I shouldn't have been a teacher, but like, you know, a lot of English teachers are like, oh, I'm, I'm writing. But I was like, are you really, or you're saying that? Like, did you ever give up like during your teaching career on, on that passion? Um, I think a hundred percent. I think that uh, the beginning years of teaching are so hard and so all consuming and you just work all the time. And even when you're not working, your brain is just so full that like finding the space in your head to write is really hard and finding the space in your life to write is even harder. So yeah, there was a really significant chunk of time where I wasn't writing in any kind of meaningful way. Um, I would try once in a while, right? Took a class once here, once there, but I couldn't figure out a sustained practice for myself. And I think in part, I needed to get to a point in my career where I could make space which took a long time. It took 10 to 12 years of being a teacher to feel like I could pick my head up and maybe have some time on a Saturday or Sunday to write. Um, So there was like that piece of like, oh, getting a handle on this incredibly challenging job that I think very few people outside of teaching understand like how all consuming it can be. Um, And then there was this also increasing weight, I would say of like, their stories I want to tell, and I'm feeling a lot of urgency around telling them. And so it really is in that 2015, 2016 timeframe that like both the time to write and the urgency around needing to write really mm-hmm. came together. Yeah. And, and I do want to talk about Grub Street because I've talked to a few authors from the area who, who take classes there. And it's not the end all be all. There's other classes you could take, but like, I, I hear it's a very special place because you just kind of Talk about your experience with Grub Street um, and what it meant to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the big things that Grub Street does that I think probably can exist in lots Mm -hmm. of contexts, but like it is really powerful to have a community of people who you can go to and share your writing with in a consistent way. That can be really hard to find, especially if you're not somebody who does a traditional path to writing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where you do an MFA and you have like a built-in community of people who you meet through that MFA who become your writing group afterwards. Like you can be very isolated with your words and trying to just like flail through the writing (laughs) process. So Grub Street creates 
structure. It creates accountability. It creates community. It does a lot of things that I think can be really hard to do for yourself if you haven't followed a traditional path. Um, And I think like on one level, like I just needed deadlines and I needed to be accountable to someone other than myself, because if I was just accountable to myself, I'd be like, I'll do it later. But if I have to submit to group this week, then I have to submit to group this week. So there's like that part. But then I also think there's a lot of really special people who work there and teach there and also go there for classes. Um, You start to see the same people show up in your classes again and again. You start to build relationships with people that spiral out into, hey, we're sharing writing and it's not connected to this class, but we're kind of forming our own group or our own conversation. Um, It it creates a sort of intentional community around writing that I think can be hard to find otherwise. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, like I said, I hear it's a magical place. I've talked to a lot of writers from Boston, from the area who have talked about it. And I, 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 it is amazing, to be honest with you. It's just great to hear everyone always has good things to say about it. As a teacher, did, have you shared, I mean, prior to you know getting a book deal, everything, or did they, were they involved in reading your stuff? Were they part of your community at all? My students? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, your students and like your fellow teachers, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So one kind of funny thing about me is I have like two writing hats. I have my sort of creative writing and creative nonfiction hat. And then I also am a pretty prolific op-ed writer. Um, I I write a lot of education related op-ed pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so particularly related to sort of issues of um, inequality and injustice in our school Mm -hmm. system. So my colleagues and my students have always been an audience for that writing. Like I think they've known, oh yeah, yeah. like yeah. there's an issue going on right now. We're going to see an op-ed from Nima. Like it's <laughs> kind of just like fairly predictable and students are used to them. Like if it pertains to them, like I'll bring it in a class for us to look at and talk about. Um, I think that was a much more known part of my identity. And I think the creative stuff has been more, um, more new for people or more recent in their awareness of like the different kinds of writing that I'm doing. Definitely. And, and I'm glad you brought that up, like the two different hats because you know, writing is writing, but it's very different. Are you able to go from op-eds in the morning to writing your creative nonfiction the same day? How like separate or together are the two in your, in your world? Uh, I can do one or the other in a day. I don't, I don't feel like my brain doesn't know how to do both. Like, I feel like with op-ed writing, once you understand the the kind of structure, like it can come pretty quickly. So like, oh, there's an issue that's arisen. I feel really passionate about it. Like I can kind of churn that out. I know the format. I know the structure. I know how many words I've got. Um, and I can be like, boom, a thousand words in the morning done. Right. Um, whereas I think creative, creative pieces are more messy. Their structure sometimes doesn't reveal itself till later. So in some ways it can be tricky. I think there's a gratification that comes from op-ed writing where it's like, I wrote it and I submitted it and it got published in three days. Like that is very, very lovely. That, that feedback is pretty great. Um, and so it can be easy to be like, I'm just going to do that kind of writing because I know how to do it and it's not messy for me. Um, whereas I think the creative process is messier and less immediately gratifying. And so you kind of have to dig in in a different way. Mm-hmm. I want this, this collection another Appalachia 2016, 2015. It's 2022 now. Um, it's been, it's a while. It takes a while to write a book to, to get a deal to, for it to actually be published. You you're it's on West Virginia university press, which yep. the university press, um, I guess kind of take me through and readers through the process of you have an essay collection. Where, where, where did you go? How did you end up with West Virginia university press? 
Yeah. So I did like an initial round of queries to agents um, and I got really lovely and kind feedback from people where they were like, this is a beautiful book. We really appreciate it. And we don't know how to sell it. Um, You know, um, my mother-in-law recently like went into a bookstore. She lives in Brooklyn and she like went into a bookstore in Brooklyn and she tried to talk about my book with a bookseller there. And they're like, we think it's too niche for us. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like it's a book about being queer and Indian from Appalachia. Sure. Like on some level, if you just look at that, yeah, it's kind of niche. I don't think that when you get into it, it's as niche as people might think it is. Like, I think there are a lot of themes that are actually really resonant across spaces and early readers are giving me that same feedback. But I think that, you know, when you think about my book on the shelf, trying to compete with, I don't know, like I understand why for an agent, it might be challenging to think about how to sell my book relative to some other ones. So pretty quickly, I kind of decided that I was curious about small and independent presses as a different way to go. Um, I had observed that presses like the University of Georgia Press and University of Kentucky Press and University of Ohio Press and WVU Press were taking risks on really interesting books. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. they were publishing, they were publishing unexpected stories and they were publishing writers whose identities were not necessarily the like what people would have perceived as the identities of the places those writers were writing about. And so I was like, maybe this is a space where publishers are willing to take more risk and are willing to kind of bet on stories um, in a different way. Yeah. And so I pivoted to small and university and independent presses and, and I got, I got kind of, I got what I expected, which was people were excited and yeah. people didn't have doubts on their ability to sell the story. People were like, nope, this is exactly the kind of story we're looking for. Yeah. Um, and with WVU Press, like it was just kind of this amazing feeling of being able to come home again. Right? Yeah. It's like there's mm-hmm. there's something really beautiful about writing a book about a place and having um, West Virginia University Press is the largest press in West Virginia. It's one of the largest presses in Appalachia. Like yeah. having them say like, yeah, we want this book. Like we home wants the book. Yeah. Like, all right, yeah. like home's going to get the book. Like that's that's a beautiful and amazing feeling. Yeah, it's funny. Like I know. I knew you weren't in West Virginia anymore. I mean, you know, I I just have followed you and everything. And but even like as I was prepping, I was like, is she back there? Like, am am I missing something? Like, it was just like in my head, I was like, it's perfect that it's at on W WVU. Um, so I'm I'm happy for you in that way. Um, and and just getting into the nitty gritty, unagented then when you sold to WVU, still yep. unagented. If you, I could cut this if you want me to, but. No, 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 it's fine. I, yeah, no, I don't have an agent. Um, <laughs> I, I think I like, you know, I sort of think like if that happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, like what this process has told me is like, if you believe in your words and you, you, you think thoughtfully about like where you submit and who you're submitting to, I think your words can find a home either way. Like, I guess that's sort of what it, I've come to is like, that's the most important thing is finding the home for your words. That's, that feels right. Um, and maybe that happens with an agent and maybe it doesn't, but ultimately it's about it feeling like the right place, um, and feeling like the values of that place align, right. With, with your values. And I just think that's been like throughout this process, I have felt consistently like affirmed in that idea that like, yeah, we have the same values. Like we're from the same place in a way. Right. So, um, I had a great conversation with, uh, with my editor where we were talking about sales and talking about promotion. And he was like, look, we're really interested in ideas of sustainability, sustainability for you as a writer and sustainability for us as a press. And I was like, 
that's exactly right. Like sustainability and humanity are things we should be talking about way more in publishing than we do right now. Right. And so just, I feel like, yeah, it's been confirmed kind of again and again that, that those are the right values. Like they're the ones that I feel like I want behind my book. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, I, I, I find that so interesting. I'm glad I asked about the agent thing because part of Day Beautiful, a lot of emails I get are, you know, people looking for advice in ways. And I'm like, I can't give advice. I'm not a fiction writer. I'm not a not nonfiction writer. I'm just a guy who likes to ask questions to people who write. Um, That's right. So, and, 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 and your story that I, you know, since reading the copy, since you know, following you on Twitter and everything, I just knew that you had to be a podcast guest so we could hear your story. So thank you for just like sharing it. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about the hustle of, of being on a, a university press on agent. So, I mean, you are, I mean, you're, what's the hustle like for you? Like, I mean, are you burnt out yet before the book's even out? <laughs> no, I'm not burnt out yet. I think I might be in about two months. Talk to me yeah. in the beginning of May and I might have a different feeling. Um, no, I mean, you know, I'm super lucky. Um, the View Press had a really big book come out last year. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, um, which is a National Book Award finalist, came out from WVU Press last year. And none of that had happened like when I signed with them, but I feel like incredibly lucky to sort of come in the wake of, of that book because I think um, it sort of had just like set a foundation that that then is easier to kind of build on, right, around... Um, around publicity, around sort of relationships with bookstores. Like I think the press is in a different place um, because of their experiences with that book. So I do feel like I am lucky in that way. I, there, you know, they have a publicist who I get to work with. Like he's hustling, I'm hustling. Like we're all hustling. I don't feel like I'm alone in the hustle, I guess is what I would say. Um, there is definitely a hustle, but but it's a, it's a collective hustle. Um, and it feels like the level of investment on all of our parts in the book is, is equal. Um, and that's really nice. So even if we're all running really fast, we're running together. Um, yeah. And I think it's been fun to see how like relationships that you form in different spaces, like just kind of can, can come back to support a book. Um, I feel like relationships I've built with Appalachian writers are sort of like pr- proving really fruitful in this context. And I didn't build them with that intention, but like they're, they're a huge support to the book. And then there's also relationships with South Asian writers that are sort of like helping me to make connections and build relationships. Um, and so it sort of is like that process of building those relationships over time does help you when you get to this point and you're like, Oh God, I need another conversation partner for another event at another place. It's not like you're like digging to find those things all the time because, because that groundwork has been laid. Yeah. And yeah, you, you lived in Pittsburgh for a bit for school. And mm-hmm. I think I, I like, as we're talking, I realized probably how I heard of your book for the first time. It had to be someone at white whale books retweeted you or something, to be honest with you. And I'm on your website now. I'm like, that's how I heard of your book. Cause one, I love white whale books and now I love you. So yes. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that s- shared love of white whale books <laughs> is definitely there. It's an amazing yes. bookstore. Um, I, awesome. And then I guess I'll wrap up. I, I, you're, you're busy. It's, it's pub week. We're recording this literally like few days before your book comes out, which I, I rarely do, but wh- what have you been reading? Have you had time to enjoy books? I mean, you're teaching, you're writing op-eds. Have you read a lot recently? I've been reading. I've been reading yeah. a lot of short stories. Short stories feel like the thing that I can kind of like um, consume in a feasible way right now. So I actually just finished two really amazing short story collections, um, After Parties by Anthony Viasna So, 
which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, short story collection um, about queer folks and Cambodian American folks um, and just like how queerness shows up in that space. And then also I just finished uh, Filthy Animals by Brandon Taylor, which um, I had a lot of love for because it's set in Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I went to grad school. Um, but also similarly kind of like raising, just like thinking about questions of queerness and identity in that context. And both of those collections were really, really beautiful. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I love both of them. I love both those writers. I wish, I mean, not to get into it, but yeah, I wish Anthony was still around. I know he had, there's a, a novel coming out that's unfinished, that is finished. So I, I, I hope people read after parties. Anytime it's mentioned, I say just everyone should read it regardless of if they think they're going to connect with it or not, they will connect with it. Same thing with your book. Like you, you mentioned, looping back to your book before we wrap up, you're like, it's niche and we don't know how to sell it. And, and a, a hipster bookstore in Brooklyn or wherever <laughs> might not. But I was like, I'm a straight white dude who lives in Denver, who grew up in Phoenix. Um, I connected with it. Everyone can connect with your book. So I, I think so. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, the, and that's the response I've gotten from lots of people. It was like, I looked at the cover of this book and I was like, eh, am I going to connect with this? And then when you get into it, you know, there's a lot of themes that are really universal. I think all of us probably have someone in our life right now who we love deeply, whose beliefs have become very far from our own. If you're somebody who has that experience, there's pieces of this book that I think are really going to resonate for you. I think all of us have um, mentors in our lives who've like really shaped us over time and made us who we are. And if you're somebody who's had that experience, I think there's stuff in this book you're going to relate to. I think um, in a lot of ways, I think this book is like quintessentially about like what it means to to grow up in this country and navigate questions of identity. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that is niche. I think that's yeah. kind of at exactly. the core of all of us. Yeah. And I, I, I meant to ask this earlier. And so this will be the last question. I promise I'll let you go. Your family's on the cover of the book right mm -hmm. it, I, I just talk about that moment because you, you have a tweet you know i can't explain how surreal it is how surreal was it <laughs> I, I mean i i don't i like you know the even just the way the cover came to be says so much i think about wvu press which is like they sent me like a questionnaire of like think about themes and um colors and whatever other things you'd want to think about in the cover and they're like drop any pictures in here that you think might inspire us and so i like you know, I'm like, I think this picture, like for me, it represents what this book is about, right? But I didn't think they would use it. Like, I was like, this is going to be inspiration. And then they came back and they were like, no, we should lead with this. Like, put, put the people at the core of the story on the cover. When people pick up this book, they're going to know what it's about right away. Um, and I think that was just so uh, affirming of like what... That, that entire existence of like trying to carve out a life for yourself and trying to build a future in a space that's so unexpected, right? The, the picture of like my family and community backed up on an old grist mill in Southern West Virginia, like it's incredibly unexpected and it's also exactly what people were doing. Um, and so it's, it's been really beautiful to, to have the story of this very small group of people become a story that lots of people are going to know about. And that hopefully like when an Indian person says they're from West Virginia next year, like maybe they won't get disbelief when they say that, because maybe people will now know that there are actually Indian people in West Virginia. Um, so that's, that's what we can hope at least. Thank you so much for Nima for joining the podcast today. You can check out all of her writing at NimaAvashia.com. 
You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net. Follow us on all social media at Day Beautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs>